Welcome to this episode of Right Stuff with me, Chris Fitzgerald, and produced by Daniel O'Connor through the Head Stuff Podcast Network. In this episode, I talk to Emer McBride. Emer is the widely acclaimed author of A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing and The Lesser Bohemians. Her writing style has drawn valid comparisons with Joyce and has won her a huge following. We had a lovely chat with a lot of insights and a good few laughs too. And I should explain that at the end I mentioned Jimmy Page. Just before interviewing Emer, much to my shock, Jimmy Page walked past me in the hallway of the hotel in Listowel. His girlfriend was taking part in the festival, so he was there unbeknownst to me to support her. So if I sound a bit excited in this interview, it's because I just saw Jimmy Page and I'm still recovering. So anyway, please enjoy this interview with the brilliant Emer McBride. So Emer, we were just talking about being a fan. We were at Listowel Writers Week and you... You were in kind of fan mode when you were talking to Edna O'Brien, I guess, weren't you? Because I you said she was. was your literary hero since you were 13, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's how I sort of opened the interview with her, was really talking about that experience of her, you know, of, of reading Country Girls being the first time that I really felt affected by language mm. uh, in a way that really changed me and changed my attitude towards it. And that's kind of a great thing about this week, isn't it? Because we're seeing different generations of writers and, you know, there are young people that, you know, 13-year-old girls out there now who could be reading uh, uh, your books and thinking, I want to start writing as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's so lovely about this festival is that it doesn't feel uh, like there's a hierarchy. Mm. Everyone's very much in it together and you can bump into people at John B's you know, anyone, yeah. and get talking to anyone. I think, yeah, really this context nice. is great for that, isn't yeah. it? It's just, it's a, it's like the square, it's the feel of it, it's, it, there's a vibe here, isn't there? And it's, it's yeah. even though it's a kind of rural place, it seems like writing has always been part of the culture here, so. Yeah, it certainly feels like that. And the whole town, I love the way the whole town is kind of excited and involved, and, you know, the, the hairdresser has books in the window, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. everyone's kind of in on it, which is kind of writer's dream, of, sort of yeah. living in a book-covered nirvana, you know. Yeah, it's just a proper community yeah, of writers, yeah. isn't it? Um, great. So, like, how much time are you spending in Ireland these days, Emer? Are you over and back a lot still? Or? It really depends. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's more back and forth, to be honest. And also, I've moved house lately, so I've been trying not to leave my house as much as possible after the stress of that. But yeah, I come over a, a couple of times a year. It really depends when I'm invited. So is your new house also your new workspace? Is that a, do you have it a is, writing room there yeah, as well? Yeah, there is a, an extremely small box room which is now mine and mine alone very good yes because you're working on i was delighted to hear that lesser bohemians is the start of a trilogy that's right it's the first book uh hopefully if i can manage to write it it will be the first of of three um but you know i also have other projects Mm. going on at the same time and those sort of eat into that time too the beckett project that's right so this year i was uh, the inaugural uh, creative fellow at uh, the Beckett Research Centre at the University of Reading where a large part of Beckett's um, archive has been lodged and it was it's the only archive that he himself was instrumental in setting up and um, gave money towards that as well and uh, so they, they've started a, a programme of fellowships where they invite different artists, not just writers, people from other forms as well, to come and spend time in the archive looking at Beckett's own materials and manuscripts um, and then go away and, and write something new based on that experience. 
Wow. So there, is there a lot there that the public hasn't seen? Would you be kind of going in there as an archivist yourself and uncovering things that we might not have read? Yeah, well, I mean, for me, certainly as a kind of a layperson, as a non-academic, uh, there was a huge amount of material that I, I didn't really know about. And and just to, to look through the drafts and drafts mm. of things that he's clearly agonised over for years is extraordinary. And just seeing the minute changes that he was making... Um, to get to that final draft is, is sort of extraordinary. And and then just to see things like, you know, they have the original manuscript of Murphy yeah. in there and to be able to look at that and look at the doodles and the... And his notes apparently are very intricate. His handwriting is terrible. Isn't, yeah, that's always the way, isn't it? Yeah, apparently Joyce as well. I was sort of, yeah, it was sort of extraordinary to arrive and, and get access and then think, I can't read this. <laughs> but after a while, your brain kind of gets used to it. And yeah. so when he's younger, it's more legible. And when he's much, much older, it becomes legible again. But that middle period, it all yeah. seems to close down. And That was mo- his most prolific time. Maybe it was the pressure or something. It, yeah, perhaps. But also, I suppose in that time, his he you know went through a long period with his eyesight failing as well before yeah. he had corrective surgery. So that probably didn't help matters much. And do you have an idea of what you're going to produce out of it? Already? I've just finished... Uh, I've finished three short performance pieces and I wouldn't say plays because they're definitely not plays but they are sort of voice pieces for performance. Okay, and is it in the style that we would recognise of yours, like A Girl is a Half-Arm thing, Lesser Bohemians? No, well, I think the the point was to go and, and, and try and understand something new and so it's um I would say that it's probably less linguistically sort of uh, Interesting. convoluted perhaps <laughs> than, than would normally be my case but I, I you know I think that the thing that I was very interested in was the, the way that Beckett strips back the the kind of the, the psychology and strips back all the markers of uh, of place and class and all of those things are gone and so that was really something that I, I took for myself and wanted to experiment with and you were writing this with performance in mind then as well? Well, I, it is something that I've been thinking about on and off for the last few years anyway. Um, and this just seemed like the perfect opportunity to try it, mm. just to try it. And also, you know, of course, when you're writing anything that might be for the theatre, you know that all the critics will go, well, it's not Beckett, is it? Mm. And so if you, if you go into that, coming from that Beckett Fellowship, you're wearing your influence on your sleeve um, and making it plain that it's not Beckett. But the comparison is obviously going to be there all it's the time. It's always there, yeah. and it's never going to be good, is it? So, well, you know, it's best to just get it over with. <laughs> because when you wrote A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, did you, you didn't have performance in mind when you wrote that, I presume, but it did become no. a play. And I have to plug here Aoife Duffin, who is ah. from my own hometown. She was a few years ahead of me in my school. Yeah, and the excellent Aoife Duffin, yeah. who was really the miracle of that whole... Um, show I think you know nothing would have really worked without her and no and and I hadn't written that at all with performance Mm. in mind and when Annie Ryan approached me I was very skeptical about it Um, but we agreed in the end that she would abridge it so it's it's literally the text of the novel but cut down to a performable length Um, and I remember the first time I went into rehearsal and I had just recorded the audio book of Girls Have From Thing myself, so I had a very particular idea of what it should sound like. Um, and we went in for the first read-through and Aoife was sitting there, sort of 
anxious as I glared at her balefully <laughs> across the table. And I thought, well, if she doesn't read this right, there is going to be trouble. And she started to read. And within about five minutes, I just thought, this is going to be fine. She knows. And she read it very differently to how I read it. But I knew that she really deeply understood it yeah. and mm, was able to make that language her own. And I think her performance, and I think anyone who saw it would agree that it was miraculous, really. Yeah, amazing. Because even I have to confess, when I first picked up A Girl as a Half-Form thing, it, I, I couldn't stick with it the first time. Yeah. And then a few months later, I came back to it and the voice just came to me and it just clicked. Yeah. And then I was able to get through it in no time, you know, and I just loved it. And have you, has, that, is that, has that come up with you before? Have you heard that is a very common reaction, <laughs> is, it, yeah. is that people say, oh, I, I tried to read it three or four times often and couldn't, just couldn't get through it. Um, and then at some point, something has brought them back to it and they've tried again and it just clicked. And mm. I think often with people, if they can get through the first five pages, usually the language then starts to make sense and they understand that it's really, it's an internal mechanism. It's not reading in the way that you traditionally read. You are not going from one end of the sentence to the other. You are not processing information in the same way that you're trying really to, to, to feel it mm. on the inside of yourself. Um, and there are some people then who really get that and really embrace it and love it. And there are other people who just hate it and really can't understand what the point is at all. Mm. Um, but you can't criticise what you can't understand, as Bob Dylan said. Funnily <laughs> enough, that doesn't seem to stop them. <laughs> but yeah. it does mean that I don't have to concern myself too unduly with their criticism, Yeah, I suppose. of course. Yeah. You can dismiss it because you <laughs> yeah. understand it. Um, but there seems to be a theme also of nine years in your writing. I know. <laughs> I might go and bring that up again, but yeah. you know, nine years to publish, a girl is half form thing, nine years to write, lesser bohemians. That's right. Are you cutting really, down on the old yeah. nine years now? Or? I'm really, really hoping to to break the cycle quite rapidly. That's I, I'm getting too old for this nine year business. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, it took me. It, it only took me six months to write, girl. So I'm hoping I'm going to find a happy medium for the next novel, somewhere between the six months and the nine-year mark. But, you know, I know when I go into that process, is I just have to follow it, and it will take as long as it will take, and there's not an awful lot I can do to either speed it up or... I, I can't leapfrog. The whole... The logic has to work for me. Um, and, and at one point, you know, Lesser Bohemians was about 800 pages long, uh, and I got to the end of that and realised that I'd written the longest sketch for a novel that anyone had ever written and had to go back and start mm. again. Um, and of course, there are a lot of people who would consider that to have been a terrible waste of time. But for me, that's where I, what I had to do in order to get to the book that I was finally happy mm. to publish. So are you getting better at making your first draft the closer closer to the final version now? No, Is that something that no you... No way. No? Okay. When I... <laughs> When I wrote Girl as a Half From Thing, you know, that was three drafts in six months. Yeah. And so that, that first draft, pretty much everything that happened in the book was in the first draft. And the second two drafts were really just fine-tuning. Um, whereas with The Lesser Bohemians, the first draft of that book is almost unrecognisable right. for the, from the final uh, thing. So I have no idea. I would like to be, you know, be able to get there more quickly and more accurately, but... Um, it just takes as long as it takes. And what are you removing from the 800 pages? There was just an awful lot of detail 
that once I had written it out, once I understood every single second of what happened in that room between those two people, I, I was sort of, it kind of, uh, I suppose I sublimated it. And I knew that once I understood exactly what was going on, I didn't need the reader to have to to troll through all of that detail too, that I would, because I understood it as the writer, I would be able to um, transcribe it for the reader in a, in a quicker way. So there was just a lot. And there were, I mean, there were a lot of scenes and a lot of things that happened, um, which later I just felt I didn't need or were repetition or were an, or over-explaining because I think the difficulty is also, you know, there has to be a moment where you trust your instinct as a writer, where you stop and you think, I am able to communicate this story and I don't have to keep explaining why what's happening is happening over and over again. That if I have done it right once, that's enough. The reader understands that I don't need to keep recapping on it. So it's trusting your instinct as a writer, but yeah. also trusting the reader to understand it, yeah. isn't it? And it's, that's something that I spoke to Colm Tobin about there a couple of days ago as well. He was you know, trying to strike that balance between giving them enough so that they can kind of create their own yeah. environment as well, but not giving them so much that you're detracting from that. Yeah. So th- is that what your, your goal yeah, is? I think, yeah, it's really important to just leave space for the reader to do the reading. I mean, that's the difference between reading and watching TV, is that, you know, it's an active pursuit when you read, you make a decision to sit and read and make your eyes go over the words and turn the page and absorb and think. When you're watching television, you can just sit and it goes inside you. It just goes in, goes in, goes in, goes in. Whereas uh, as a reader, you have to be part of that process. And because the reader is an active participant in the process, you have to give them credit for that. And the fact that their brains will be engaging, hopefully, with what you're writing means that you don't always have to say every single thing because they're arriving with their own intelligence. They will understand what you're getting at without having to spell it all out. Yeah. So then how far are you into the next parts of the trilogy, can I ask, or is that a... Not much, because then I accidentally started writing a novella just as a little kind of break where I thought oh, I'll just, I've got a little gap. I'd handed in some of the Beckett stuff and I knew I wasn't going to be going back out to the archive until after Christmas. And I thought, I just fancy writing something that nobody cares about, nobody knows about. And I'll just write that very quickly and just, I don't know what it'll be like, but and it just became something else. So that's kind of going along as well. So, But I hope that will be finished quite soon. But that is, you know, I wouldn't criticise that either because that's like an awful lot of great work has come out of those periods, hasn't it? It's like people, not that they go through a writer's block, but they kind of go down one avenue to kind of open up the other avenue. Is yeah, that helping? I think so. Is it helping sometimes, you to get back into the project? Yeah, I think so. You just, sometimes you need to stop focusing so intently on one thing. Mm. And the minute you take your eye away, the brain relaxes and can allow new things to come in. So, you know, one thing feeds the other, absolutely. Mm. When you just... And it's important not to lose the fun of it and the pleasure of it. And I think when you've had a book that's been successful and people are, publishers are waiting or wanting things from you, it's, it's, it, it would be easy to, in, to lose what it is that you enjoy about it. Mm. And so just doing other little things here and there kind of helps with that, I think. Including coming to a festival like this, I presume? Including coming to a festival like this. Well, you know, 
it's always fun, isn't it? And it's hard not to be inspired around here, isn't it? Just yeah. so many great people like uh, Jimmy Page just passes <laughs> in the hallway. I have to say that. Get that on record. <laughs> Jimmy Page, my heart is still beating. <laughs> anyway, Emer, thanks you very much for joining us on Right Stuff. That was a lovely chat. Thank, Thank you so much. You. Thanks again to Emer for taking the time for that chat. And again to the organisers of Listole Writers Week for making it possible. Please like, rate and share and subscribe to the podcast. We have loads more great interviews coming up, so please keep listening. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at WriteStuffChris. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.